Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have David Olson. He's an associate professor at University of California, Davis. We're going to talk about psychedelics without tripping, but still getting the beneficial effects of them. So, David, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. If you would tell me about your lab and your work and how you got to this point in your career. Sure. So I'm a chemical neuroscientist. And what that means is I use small molecules to understand how the nervous system works. And big focus for my lab has really been on the discovery of new medicines for treating a wide variety of brain disorders, in particular brain disorders who has cortical atrophy at their root. Cortical atrophy is essentially kind of the withering of the brain. If you think of a neuron in the cortex like a tree, the branches would be the dendrites and leaves would be the synapses. And in many, many brain disorders, the branches get pruned and the the leaves fall off. This is true of neuropsychiatric diseases like depression, PTSD, and substance use disorder. But it's also true of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And so our group has really been focused on trying to find medicines that regrow these really critical neurons. And we call these small molecule psychoplastogens. Okay. What do these small molecules do? How do they affect people's brains? And the, you know, what's the dynamic? Here? Well, they, they bind to some key receptors in certain parts of the brain that actually physically promote the growth of these key neurons. So the issue with many of these disorders is that when neurons in the cortex atrophy, they can't communicate effectively with other parts of the brain. And that leads to many of the symptoms of diseases like depression, the anhedonia, the lack of motivation, you know, for things like addiction, it drives drug seeking behavior for something like PTSD. It might result in enhanced responses to to fearful stimuli. 
And these cycloplastogens, uh, by again, promoting the growth of those really critical neurons, allow the cortex to talk to other parts of the brain and respond more appropriately to these types of stimuli. And they can produce really long lasting therapeutic effects after a single administration, which I think is, is really um, exciting because it, it's really moving us one step closer towards actually finding cures for these illnesses rather than simply treating the disease symptoms. So are these found in, in psychedelic mushrooms or where are they found these compounds? There are a large number of psychoplastogens. Some are uh, natural products like psilocybin, which is found in these psychedelic mushrooms or magic mushrooms. But there's also a whole bunch of psychoplastogens that were invented by man that are non-natural compounds that have some medicinal value. Uh, One that comes to mind would be this molecule ketamine. It's kind of psychedelic adjacent. It's not really a psychedelic, but it has a lot of similar properties, including some hallucinogenic and dissociative effects. The ketamine produces pretty profound effects on neuronal structure. And it's believed that that's why it produces kind of lasting effects uh, related to lasting antidepressant effects in treatment resistant populations. Okay. Are you studying ketamine? Are you studying psilocybin? What's your focus? We study them all. Any compound that promotes cortical growth is something that is actively being investigated by our lab. We want to understand their mechanisms of action so that we can produce better versions of them. You know, these first generation hallucinogenic compounds like ketamine and psilocybin, I think are going to be very, very important for neuropsychiatry because they're completely changing the paradigm of how we treat these illnesses. But they're imperfect drugs. They have some safety issues associated with them. But more importantly, I think they lack true scalability to really reach the broadest patient population, to reach a really, really large number of patients. And in order to achieve that goal, my lab is developing non-hallucinogenic psychoplastogens that potentially could be take-home therapeutics and as a result could be administered by a larger number of patients. Where do the psychoplastogens come from? Are they made by the body with precursors supplied by ketamine or psilocybin or... Do these compounds actually contribute these psychoplastogens to the body? So the psychoplastogens that my lab focuses on, these are compounds that we synthesize in the lab. But there are natural psychoplastogens found in your body. They haven't been studied very well. (laughs) It's kind of hard to measure their levels. And especially to do this in humans, it's, it's incredibly challenging. But in terms of medicinal psychoplastogens, most of them are either... Uh, synthesized in the lab, or they're produced by uh, natural sources such as plants and, and fungi. Well, the natural sources are they been considered to be a natural source? You know, the mushrooms themselves, or what? What are natural sources of the psychoplastogen? Yeah, I mean, magic mushrooms would be an example of a natural source of a psychoplastogen. There are other plants that have psychoplastogenic substances, like, um, for instance, ibogaine comes from a shrub found primarily in West Africa. Dimethyltryptamine is another psychoplastogen that is found in a plant in the Amazon. Uh, And so you can find psychoplastogens all over the place in the natural world, but uh, medicine is really focused on taking those base structures and and trying to optimize them for for use in humans. So what what were some of the negative effects you were talking about with uh, ketamine or the safety problems and, and psilocybin that you want to address by removing them? 
Yeah, so there are a, a number of safety issues depending on the specific drug. And so, you know, I'll maybe give you a couple of examples. So molecules like ketamine and psilocybin, the hallucinogenic effects of those compounds are really issue with respect to their true scalability, because as psychedelic assisted psychotherapy stands now, you have to go into the doctor's office to prepare yourself for that session. Then you receive your dose of drug. And then depending on uh, how long it sticks around in the body, you have to stay under the observation of a clinician. And then you have to come back for an integration session. And uh, that can really drive up healthcare costs and just decrease the number of patients who could could benefit from that type of treatment. So one possibility is just to to simply remove the hallucinogenic aspects of those drugs, but retain the neuroplasticity promoting effects uh, and this neuronal growth uh, phenotype that we're going for. But there are other issues as well. Many psychedelics have some cardiotoxicity issues. They agonize things like 5-HT2B receptors, which can lead to cardiac valvulopathy. Some of them bind to HERD channels, which are ion channels in the heart that if you inhibit them can cause heart attacks. Uh, And a perfect example, that would be something like Ibogaine. Ibogaine is a very interesting psychoactive molecule that has shown some promise through some open label clinical trials and anecdotal reports uh, for treating substance use disorder. And there's some evidence that suggests that a single dose of Ibogaine can keep heroin addicts drug-free for, for up to six months, which is an incredible amount of time after a single dose. But the issue with Ibogaine, in addition to its hallucinogenic effects, has really been its ability to inhibit that that ion channel in the heart, the HERD channel. And as a result, several people have actually died from taking Ibogaine to try to treat their addictions. And so recently, my lab reported on a a new Ibogaine-like compound that we call tabernanthalog or TBG. And TBG has been engineered to both lack the hallucinogenic effects that Ibogaine has, but also lack the cardiotoxicity issues. And even though, you know, TBG is a bit safer, uh, it still produces really profound, long lasting therapeutic effects in, uh, in preclinical models. So what basis are you starting with uh, regular ketamine and trying to strip things out of it, magic mushrooms and trying to strip out certain compounds? Like what's your plan of attack here? So really the plan of attack is we take the, the structure of, a, of one of these, you know, cycloplastogenic compounds, be it psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, be it LSD, be it dimethyltryptamine, be it ibogaine. And then we use chemistry to just physically tweak the structures just enough so that we can retain the beneficial properties, but remove the undesired effects. And so it really comes down to, you know, a molecular manipulation of chemical structure that is a way that we can engineer better medicines. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. 
Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So do you have to change the compounds or can you merely strip away other compounds that would cause these off-target effects? So usually all of these treatments are single compounds. So it's not like there's a ton of different compounds that are, are necessarily giving rise to a therapeutic effect. So for instance, if you go into the clinic to receive a ketamine infusion for treatment resistant depression, you're just getting ketamine. Um, and so we're not taking away other compounds in the formulation. We're simply taking that structure and changing it. We're changing it to be something completely different that has different properties. It might have similar properties in terms of its therapeutic effects, but has very different properties in terms of its safety profile and, and its scalability. Any promising ones so far? Like which one appears to be the best backbone or starting point? Well, that's, that's an unanswered question right now. And so because we're not entirely sure which backbone is the best, and it might be that each backbone offers its own unique advantages. And as a result, we've been working on all of them. You know, we're developing analogs of psilocybin, analogs of ibogaine, analogs of LSD, analogs of MDMA, you know, you name it. We're looking at all of them. Now, it might seem reasonable that an analog of ibogaine is likely to be useful for addiction because ibogaine has been shown to have anti-addictive properties. Now, something like MDMA, I think is also really interesting. MDMA, again, it's not a, a psychedelic, but it, I would call it a psychedelic adjacent compound. There's some really exciting data from phase three clinical trials suggesting that MDMA might be effective for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the issue with MDMA is not its hallucinogenic effects. It doesn't really produce profound mystical type experiences in most people. And the hallucinogenic effects that it does produce are really mild. They're like flashes of light in the periphery. The issue with MDMA is more its, um, its addictive liability. It produces some psychostimulant-like properties, properties that are very similar to compounds like amphetamine and methamphetamine. And so that I think is really what limits the clinical use of MDMA. And so we've been working on an MDMA analog that has this anti-PTSD-like effect, but gets rid of the addiction liability. Well, mushrooms have, a, I would think, a whole bunch of compounds, not just psilocybin. What can we learn by studying those ancillary compounds that may be supportive of the effect or detrimental to it? Yeah, mushrooms do have a lot of compounds. Many of them are very similar in structure to psilocybin. It's largely believed that the therapeutic effects of magic mushrooms are really are coming from psilocybin. And we know this in part from, you know, some clinical work. If you take purified psilocybin, that's what most of the clinical trials being done use. And you, we see therapeutic effects with just that single compound. But there are other natural mixtures that have really interesting effect that maybe don't come from a single compound. And, and the one that comes to mind is ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is this, uh, you know, herbal tea developed by, you know, taking a couple of different plants found in the Amazon and, and boiling them in some water and extracting out all of the compounds in those plants preparations and then ingesting the tea. And one of the plants contains this compound dimethyltryptamine, and another plant contains a whole series of compounds known as hormala alkaloids. And it really does seem to be that it's this unique combination of the two types of molecules 
that give rise to really potentiated therapeutic effects. Whereas if you take the molecules on an individual basis, you get uh, you know, lower levels of efficacy. And it's this combination that seems to have some kind of synergistic effects. And that might be due to a variety of different reasons. But one is this idea of polypharmacology. The idea is pretty simple. It's that you know, many brain disorders are incredibly complex. They involve different regions of the brain. And they involve different receptors. And so instead of targeting one receptor, what if you targeted a whole bunch of receptors that might play a role in the disease process? And I think that's where these mixtures of compounds can potentially be very beneficial and might also allow us to tailor medicines to specific indications. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Could you like um, ayahuasca's ketamine or psilocybin? Could you add a little bit of ketamine, a little bit of psilocybin, a little bit of MDMA, make a poly pill that, again, doesn't have off-target effects, but has these, these beneficial reinforcing different compounds? There are definitely people that are investigating this. Yeah, taking you know molecules like psilocybin and combining it with MDMA, those two compounds, while they do have some root effects that are the same, this idea of promoting cortical plasticity, both molecules do that. They have their own unique polypharmacology. And so, you know, by combining them in interesting ways, you might be able to find some interesting therapeutic mixtures. Are there psychoplastogens that, you know, have no hallucinogenic effects? You know, any natural ones occurring in foods we eat or other substances? I mean, there are plenty of non-hallucinogenic psychoplastogens, but most of them are man-made. They're not, at least we haven't discovered any any natural psychoplastogens that I'm aware of that produce effects that are on the same scale as something like, like psilocybin. I don't know. What do you think will be the ideal path forward? You're, you're looking at various different hallucinogens or various different drugs to see which one's most amenable to modification, or do you have to focus on a particular one and keep modifying and tweaking that? I think that uh, we need to keep all paths open because you know, as I mentioned, I think that each scaffold probably has its own unique properties. It could be better suited for one indication over another. And I also think that we need to keep, you know, both the hallucinogenic and the non-hallucinogenic approaches open. It's become very clear in recent years that many psychedelic substances can be administered safely under the supervision of a healthcare professional and I think that's, that's fantastic for the field. You know, patients are in desperate need of new treatments. And so we absolutely need to keep going down that road. But I think that uh, ultimately those treatments are not going to be scalable enough to address the problem. The magnitude of the problem is enormous. <laughs> and that's something I think a lot of people fail to realize. You know, one out of five people suffer from a neuropsychiatric disease at some point in their lifetime. We're talking about a billion people worldwide. If we're going to treat that number of patients, we need scalable approaches, something that is so simple that a patient can just walk to a pharmacy, pick up their medicine and bring it home and put it in their medicine cabinet. And right now we, we can't really do that with these first generation hallucinogenic psychoplastogens. So I also think we need to develop these, these non-hallucinogenic psychoplastogens. You know, years ago, I remember in smoke shops, they had spice, they had K2 and, you know, the makers of it would, you know, change the molecule slightly. And then the DEA would come in and say, all right, that's legal now. And they would change it again and again and again. 
Is there anything to be learned from this cat and mouse game with uh, the legal illegality of these substances and see what other chemists have done, whether for good or evil? In ter- are you talking about in terms of the medicine? In terms of, you know, let's say you studied spice, okay? And there's now 46 variations that still get people high, but they're variations. And this came about because, again, of this cat and mouse game between, mm. oh, now it's illegal. Oh, now we changed the molecule. We made an anti-humor or something. Now it's legal again. Oh, now we made that illegal. Now we changed it again. But meanwhile, all these analogs have been out there in the public and used by different people. So can anything be learned from, let's say, studying spice, if anyone's done it? All the different compounds made and used and their effects, which ones worked, which ones didn't. Maybe that would inform your, your tweaking of these other substances. Yeah, actually, that is, uh, that's how we started, actually. <laughs> so when we first had this idea trying to develop non-hallucinogenic cycloplastogens, we actually went into the literature, not just the scientific literature, but also in in popular books and in online forums and we were looking for molecules that people had made that actually did not produce hallucinogenic effects and those were some of our first lead compounds and we found that those drugs even though they did not produce hallucinogenic effects many of them still had psychoplastogenic effects and so they had some therapeutic potential so that's one way where these, these other molecules that have been made can potentially inform future efforts to, de- to develop better medicines. But another way is, is in the pro-drug realm. And so there have been some you know, underground illicit chemists who have been making pro-drugs of psychedelics to, to basically circumvent uh, the schedule compound laws. But those pro-drugs in, them, in and of themselves could be really interesting for changing the pharmacokinetic properties of the natural psychedelics. And that is really, really important because ultimately to produce a really successful medicine, the drug not only has to act on the target in the way that you want it to, but it also has to get to the target. And the target for all these brain disorders are in the brain. And it's very, very challenging to get molecules into the brain due to the blood brain barrier. And so some of these pro-drugs might actually provide optimized pharmacokinetic properties that could have some medicinal value, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done on that. What do you think is likely to be, you know, successful or doable in the next few years? And what's going to take a lot longer than that? I think that in the next few years, the immediate future really will um, involve the development of these hallucinogenic cycloplastogens for treatment-resistant populations. Um, but in the longer term, I see them being replaced by these, these more scalable non-hallucinogenic cycloplastogens that are tailored to specific disease indications. It takes a long time to develop a drug. And we're just at the early stages of, of this type of research. But ultimately, I see that's where it, it's going to go. So in general, psychoplastogenic medicines, I think, are really transforming uh, how we think about treating neuropsychiatric disorders. But ultimately, we're going to have to uh, come up with better psychoplastogens, uh, compounds that are safer and, and more scalable than the current ones that we have available to us. In order for these psychoplastogens to work, you know, if I just take one in the morning and I go about my day and I don't have any of the hallucinogenic effects, what if it doesn't work for me because I'm missing out on my brain need, needing to be in a non-active state 
you know, like, you know, when you sleep, your brain heals and cleans itself out, et cetera. Maybe that's why the hallucinogenic effects are included in these because they incapacitate the person in a way to allow them to, to heal and for these other compounds to do their work. I think I understand the, the root of your question. I think there is lots of evidence that to suggest that the non-hallucinogenic cyclopasogen still could be effective and you don't need the hallucinogenic effects to achieve efficacy. And I think a, a really good example would be a molecule like MDMA. It doesn't really produce psilocybin-like subjective effects, but it still produces really long-lasting therapeutic effects after a single administration. But of course, we'll never know for sure until more of these compounds really get into the clinic and we start collecting more human data. And it might be for a subset of the population, these hallucinogenic effects uh, can be very therapeutic. Perhaps they are helping the patients gain insight into their disorder, or maybe they're facilitating better connection with their, their therapist. Maybe they're just enhanced placebo uh, effects. We, we really don't know. But that's why I do think it's important that we keep them on the table for some patients, because I think they absolutely could benefit a small subset of patients. I just think that the number of patients is going to be limited. And so if we really want to you know, address the magnitude of the, the mental health crisis in this country, we really need to develop more scalable alternatives. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Sure, you can always uh, check out uh, our work on our lab's website, which is olsonlab.org. Um, we publish, we, we post our, our latest papers there. You can also follow us on Twitter at DE Olson Lab. And then if you're interested in where these compounds are going in the clinic, I would point you towards Delix Therapeutics. Delix is a company that I co-founded uh, to try to bring some of these non-hallucinogenic cycloplastogens to the clinic. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.